Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. Well, normally at this time, I would ask you to turn to a certain passage as we walk through books of the Bible together, and I will do that in a few weeks when we start in the book of Matthew, and we'll be in Matthew for quite a long time, but occasionally in between books, I like to do two, three weeks on a topic and kind of look at a biblical theology for that topic. We just finished going through John's epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, last week, and so two weeks ago rather. And so now um, I want to I do a pause before we get to the book of Matthew and do a biblical study on the topic of worship. Worship. If you remember when I first came here about two and a half years ago, the first topical study we did together on a Sunday morning was on worship. And this is going to be different. We're not just repeating the same kinds of ideas. If you remember that two years ago, it was a three-week study on the topic of worship, just as this will be a three-week study. But that was, we did one week on personal worship, one week on corporate worship, so that's this, our collective worship, and then one week on what we can look forward to and long for in heavenly worship. Individual, corporate, and then eventually heavenly worship. Well, this study and the three weeks that we're going to be in it, I want to look more in depth on the topic of corporate worship. That second one, that group worship, I want to look at that topic. Maybe you might ask why. Why, why do a study on what this needs to look like or what should take place in our corporate worship gathering? Well, I think it's a common belief that someone's worship is automatically good if it feels authentic and it feels genuine. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, if you've seen this as well, but I think it's common in the modern church today that as long as somebody's feeling something, whatever it looks like, well, that must be good. It's authentic. It's genuine. If you know my background much and where I came from to come here, I've seen some chaotic services um, with some uh, very expressive worship in a lot of ways. And many would argue, well, it's all good because it's all genuine and it's all, in quotes, authentic. And so it must be acceptable worship to God because that's the only criteria on which we base what is good worship is if it means something for me. And I think it's largely been forgotten in churches today that God's Word tells us how He expects us to worship. Right? He expects us to live certain ways with our finances. We would all accept that. He expects us to live certain ways sexually, relationally, 
occupationally, but it's also true that his word is clear in what he expects from his people when they gather to worship him too. It's not silent on that issue. Far from it. And I think that's been largely forgotten. And that means, listen, because the word speaks on that so extensively, that means that you and I, we don't have to guess on what this needs to look like. We don't have to worry about if we're getting it right or wrong. We can look to God's Word. His revelation is sufficient. It's clear. I think it's also been largely forgotten in churches today that, therefore, because of what I just said, there is a right and there is a wrong way to worship God. I think that's hard for some people. Pump the brakes. I thought all we needed to have genuine Authentic worship to me, and that's acceptable to God. But no, it's, I think, forgotten that there are, in fact, wrong ways to express our worship to God. Genesis chapter 4 goes all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis 4, where one sacrifice was accepted and one was rejected. All the way from the very beginning, Cain and Abel. Acceptable worship and rejected worship. We see in 2 Chronicles 26, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, which at the start of his reign, lived in a godly way and reigned over Israel in a godly way. But eventually, it says, the text says, as he, as he became prideful, that's often where our our acceptable worship deviates is when we start getting prideful and we start thinking we know what's best. As King Uzziah's pride grew in his godliness and in his holiness, he stepped outside of the bounds of what God prescribed for his people in their worship. And so he went in to the temple and he began burning incense without a priest, which that's a priest's duty. If you read Second Chronicles 26, God struck him with leprosy. There is indeed acceptable worship and expressions of worship and forms of worship, and there are indeed unacceptable worship, forms of worship, expressions of worship. Leviticus chapter 10. Maybe you know the story of Nadab and Abihu, priests, ungodly priests, and they, the, the text says, offered unacceptable unacceptable worship. That's the, that's the phrase that it uses. Unacceptable worship. And God's response in Leviticus 10 to their unacceptable worship or sacrifice was to consume them with fire. And now if we turn to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews has that story of Leviticus 10 in his mind, the people that offered unacceptable worship and were consumed with fire for it, when we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, it says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Nothing's changed from Old Testament to New Testament. Same God. Same expectations. Same consuming fire. So let us therefore not be like Nadab and Abihu, but offer acceptable worship. Worship which he has prescribed us to offer. So that's, that's really my desire in this, 
three-week study is that we would consider what the Word of God says on this topic and that we would do in this room on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. We would do in this room what God would prescribe us to do. And we would act according to God's written Word to us and for us. And so that, that's really my hope. Is just, let's look at the Bible and let's, let's act accordingly in our corporate worship gathering. So my outline, if, for my outlining people, um, for our three-week study, we're going to talk about the three parts of our bodies which our worship should impact, and it's in order. Our heads, our hearts, and our hands. I'm a good Southern Baptist. H-H-H. Our heads, hearts, and hands. I want to start with, because the order matters, head, heart, hands. Today, I want to talk about how our worship starts in the head. Theology matters. Right belief and right thinking matters. And from the head should flow to the heart. Passion matters. Intellectual worship without any concern or care is still unacceptable worship. You see? And heartfelt worship without good theology is also unacceptable. You need good theology which flows into good passion our heart, that'll be next week. And then from our heart, based on our head, comes our expression. And God speaks to our proper expressions and actions in worship as well. Proper theology, proper passion, proper expression. These are things that God speaks to about our corporate worship as a church. And I want to consider each one of them in order And so today, the time that we have, I want to look at the theology in our worship, that in fact it matters what we think and what we believe and what we say. It shouldn't just be heartfelt, it matters what we're saying and what we're thinking. Our worship starts in the brain. Don't believe anyone that tells you your worship starts right here. It doesn't. Right here is sparked from what is going on up here. Our worship starts in the brain. and we, we know about God's love. We know about God's love. And so that leads to thankful hearts, doesn't it? Thankful hearts for the love of God for wretched men. We know God's love, so that leads to a thankful heart, which then is expressed by singing out to a God who deserves it. We start with knowing about God's holiness and dwelling on God's holiness, which then leads to a convicted heart. Oh God, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. We know about God's holiness, which leads to conviction of heart, which then leads to a a redirection in my action and my living as worship. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 would say, our lives are our worship to God. This is the problem, though. Many in churches today are bored with theology. Many are bored with heady sermons. We don't want to think, do we? We want to feel. How how quick can we get to the good feeling? That's what we want. We just want the emotional experience. 
but we don't want to think to get to it. It's like starting a car and you want to bypass the starter to get the engine revving. You proud of me or what? Car analogy. So oftentimes we want to bypass the starter and get the engine revving in our hearts. But the problem is the starter matters. What we're starting it with matters. We can't rush to the emotions, but so oftentimes people are so bored with theology. I don't want to have to think. I don't want to have to study. I don't want to have to contemplate and wrestle. That's, give me something to feel. I don't know if I should be so bold as to say that this is lazy Christianity, but I can certainly say it's unbiblical Christianity. <clears throat> and what happens when we want to bypass that starter and just go straight to the revving the engine of our hearts, it leads to unbiblical worship. Vadi Bakum, Vodi Bakum, sorry, comments on this. What this effect has had on the average church when he says the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. We can't bypass the starter. We have to know the one we're passionate about. In fact, isn't it John 4, verse 23, which says, but the hour is coming, this is Christ speaking, and is now here when the true worshipers, okay, so there's false worshipers, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what guides our worship, truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Please hear this. The church doesn't need to be more relevant and attractive. She simply needs to know the Bible better. The church needs to know the Word of God. So our worship, our worship services should be rooted in biblical theology. Through and through, all the way through it, ingrained into the very core of our worship services should be biblical theology. Vibrant, robust biblical worship. Looking at a big picture in our worship services, kind of a bird's eye view of our worship services, the truth of God should shape the entire service order in itself. Maybe you haven't thought of this, but, but consider these things. The Word of God should shape even the order of our service. So think about how Pastor Tran and I lead our services. And I think we, we can grow in this even too. But already, God speaks through His Word as a call to worship. Have you noticed? We start the, wor- the service. Everyone stand and hear the Word of God proclaimed to you. God speaks to His people through His Word. And we respond in our first song of praise. Did you hear that? I read about how God rules over the heavens and over all the earth and over the moon and the stars and the sun. And then I said, now join in all of creation as we sing to this God and King. And we responded with our hearts to what we just heard. This matters. Notice when I have everyone stand later in the service, right before we go into singing more songs. We recite scripture together. We read about our sinfulness today, Romans 3. We read about these things, and then what do we do in response to having read that? We sing to a God that loves us. 
theology to passion. And then now, God's word, God's truth is proclaimed in the sermon. And what are we going to do in response? We're going to pray and we're going to sing. It starts in the head and from the head flows our response passionately in worship. It, It should shape the whole service order as a whole, but also more specifically, the truth of God's word should saturate each individual element of the service. Not just the big picture, but each little section needs to be rich in theology. The, specifically, I'm thinking about today what we're going to look at is the sermon needs to be rich in theology. The songs we sing needs to be rich in theology. And the prayers we pray need to not just be authentic and genuine and heartfelt, but rich in theology. I want to look at those three with you. The sermon, the songs, and the prayers. Firstly, the teaching, that is the sermon, should be rooted in rich theology. And I think that's most obvious, right? We expect biblical sermons. Maybe we forget about needing biblical songs or biblical prayers, but it's maybe of the three most obvious that we need biblical sermons because it's preaching the Bible. But we do. This was modeled in the New Testament in Acts chapter 17. We see Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, that's the Lord's Day, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned, speaking to the mind of people, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving. Do you notice it doesn't just say encouraging Speaking to the heart, building up, making feel good. No, no, no. Reasoning, explaining, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This is theology. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So who is this Jesus? He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ and he's explaining and proving theology. It was modeled that the Bible, the, the sermons need to be saturated in theology. Now, this puts an expectation on me, doesn't it? It does. Puts an expectation on Pastor Trent. He preaches. It's an expectation for us to work hard at our weekly responsibility of preaching faithful sermons. And I take that very seriously, that you would be fed with the Word of God. This puts an expectation on me to do as Paul did. But please note this, the expectation isn't only on the pastors that the sermons be rich in theology. Because they're rich in theology, now the expectation's on you as well. The congregation must learn to grow in the discipline of sitting through and receiving difficult concepts, right? To not sing our hearts out in passion, only to sit down and fall asleep during a sermon. Can I get real with you? <laughs> the expectation's on me, but the expectation's on you as well as the congregation to learn to grow in receiving robust theology. Notice in Psalm 78, 
I wanted it all on one screen, so it's a little smaller. Look what the first four verses says. Give ear, O my people. Okay, they're listening to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in, in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. I want you to look at this passage with me for a minute. Notice what is being taught to the people that they are expected to grow and hear and understand. What does it say he's going to teach them? Parables? Dark sayings from of old? Do these sound like easy things that are just just grasping? That sounds good. Life lesson there. No, parables are difficult. Read the Gospels. (laughs) Parables are hard to understand. They take work to understand. And dark sayings of old, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm like, that sounds like it's going to be difficult. Right? And so, let's make some application out of this. A 15-minute pep talk on self-esteem isn't what God has in mind for our sermons. They're meant to be challenging. Dare I say, intellectual. But notice what else he preaches to them about. It's towards the end. We'll tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord, of his might, and the wonders that he has done. What lesson can we get from that? But that if a sermon is all about me or us, how to enjoy life, how to make it through the week, how to invest my finances better. If it's just about that, it's not a biblical sermon, it's not a Christ-centered sermon, and so it's probably a sermon you shouldn't be sitting under and find another church. Sermons before it's about us should be about God and His glorious deeds and His work and His amazing majesty. Sermons are God-focused before it has anything to do with us. It teaches theology. But not only the sermons or the teachings should be robust in theology, but you ready? The songs should be rooted in theology. The songs we sing should be rooted in theology. Colossians chapter 3 says very clearly, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How were the Word of God dwell richly among us? How's that going to happen? How will we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom? Well, in part, Paul says, by the songs we sing. By the songs we sing. Let me ask you a question. Kiddos, looking out. Where in the Bible might I go to find 150 songs? I hear the answers being whispered. 
The book of Psalms. Yeah. Yeah, the book of Psalms. We read them now just like we would you know, read any poetry in the, in the Bible, but before they were poetry to be read, there were songs to be sung. Maybe you didn't know that, that but the, the, the Psalter is what it's called, the, the collection of the Psalms. The Psalter was Israel's hymn book. They would sing these songs regularly. And I think those who compiled the hymn book of Israel, they knew this, that the songs needed to be rooted in theology. Not just heartfelt, make me feel good, pick me up songs. I I can say that because when they intentionally picked the first psalm to be in all 150 psalms, do you know how that first psalm starts? Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but he delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's the stalt. That's the start of Israel's hymn book. Now let's sing, right? But it starts with, they knew it starts with the law of the Lord. Knowing the Bible. So this then requires us to honestly assess songs that we sing. I realize that's a touchy subject. Many songs are nostalgic or we just love the, the, the sound of it, the, the way that it carries, the melody. I don't know all the terminology, but our hearts are grabbed by a lot of them, aren't they? Aren't, aren't our hearts? But we need to honestly assess the songs that we sing. Believe it or not, there are bad contemporary songs. Was that a stretch to believe? There are bad contemporary songs, believe it or not. Let me just read you the lyrics of one. It's called Surrounded. This is how it goes. There is a table that you've prepared before me in the presence of my enemies. It's your body and your blood that you've shed for me. This is how I fight my battles. Now, pause. So far, so good, right? I mean, that's, that's based on Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Right? This is Psalm 23. So far, so good. Now, the song continues. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how I fight my battles. This is how. I'll pause. It keeps going, believe it or not. I just want to say, we can do better. Right? We can do better than that. At the very least, continue Psalm 23. I started with that one because the second one is also true. There are bad hymns. Just because they're old doesn't mean they're tried and true. Well, maybe tried. Yeah. Don't hate the messenger. There's a number of them. I just picked one. And maybe you love it, but Mansion Over the Hilltop. 
Have you considered the theology? Don't stone me for this. Let me read the lyrics to the song, Mansion Over the Hilltop. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. In that bright land where we'll never grow old, and someday yonder we'll never meet more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm but a pilgrim in search of the city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. Setting aside all biases, any nostalgic feels you have for the song, setting it aside, okay, for a minute. Notice a few things. There is no mention of the name of God. There's no mention of the glory of God. There's no mention of the work of God. There is mention to gold and crowns and mansions, but there's no mention of how God's better and that those things don't make heaven heaven. God's presence makes heaven. So, lead me to believe that this could easily lead, lead people to think that heaven will be great with or without God. The song teaches nothing different than that. But I assure you, without God, heaven is not heaven. Even with the greatest mansions or gold crowns, it's not heaven. It's hell. We have to think on these things. Thankfully, we have many rich songs to pick from. So we don't have to sing, this is how I fight my battle 42 times. Thank the Lord. There is a fountain filled with blood in Christ alone before the throne of God above. A mighty fortress, His mercy is more. How firm a foundation. Come thou fount. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. There's so many more songs we sang today. All creatures of our God and King. Living hope. There's so many songs with rich theology. Why would we need to sing? those lyrics. You might ask though, why does it matter if theologically rich songs or theologically accurate songs are sung? Can't we just sing songs? Why does it matter if they're theologically rich and accurate? Well, let me tell you, they teach you theology whether you know it or not. They shape your theology whether you know it or not. Quote from a man named Andrew Fletcher said, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes the laws. Why would he say that? Because songs shape culture. Music artists shape culture. So as we hum a tune or we sing a lyric, 
and it's in our mind, it's stuck in the back of your mind, whether it be all creatures to our God and King or baby shark, whatever it is, as we can't get this lyric out of our minds all week long, without even knowing it, our theology is being formed, whether good or bad. Because our minds are being formed, whether good or bad. So may we, when we gather, put things in our brains for the week that are going to be good for our theology. Lastly, not just should our sermons be biblically rooted, our songs should be biblically rooted, but our prayers should be based on and saturated in rich theology. Now, of course, there needs to be a balance, no doubt. We must keep a balance. On the one side, our prayers need to be down to earth, don't they? Very real. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him for he cares about you. And so certainly our prayers should be just very practical and down to earth. Like a child telling their father all that's on their mind just won't quit jabbering. That should be us, right? We don't have to nitpick every little phrase that we use to make sure it sounds poetic and elegant. No, certainly not. We should just pour out our hearts to God when there's sickness or a hurting relationship or career aspirations or an unsaved family member or money troubles, we should, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all our cares on Him because He cares about us. That part I think we do well, okay? I think we do well to cast our concerns on Him. The other side of the coin, though, and this is the one that I think is often forgotten, is that we should also be careful to make sure our prayers are reverent, knowing who we're talking to. Yes, a child speaking to his or her father. Absolutely. Also, an undeserving worshiper speaking to Almighty God. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And so we have to ride that balance well. Pour out our hearts to God like a child would a father and yet revere Him as Almighty God and Creator of all things. And that, I think, the second, would lead us to not be sloppy like when we are in the presence of a king with our words. Let me read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This isn't just Isaac's ideas. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. They don't know what they are doing is evil. Don't be rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Oh man, how many, how many of us need to hear that? Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, high and lifted up, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This part of prayer isn't always talked about. I think we say, when it comes to talking, you know, horizontally, person to person, we say, think before you speak. 
And yet we think that doesn't apply when we're talking to Almighty God. Am I right? So let's recover the discipline of praying theologically thoughtful and truthful prayers. You know, praying, Father, thank You for dying on the cross for me. Yes, He he knows what you mean, obviously. He has an idea of what you mean. You meant to say, Son, thank You for, or Father, thank You for sending the Son. But when we say, Father, thank You for dying on the cross for me, yes, God knows what we mean there, but is it the most honoring to Him if we are careless and throw out errors often in the theology of our worship? How much more honoring and glorifying to God would it be if we are articulate in our understandings when we are speaking to Him? Especially for the leaders, Pastor Trent, myself, our public prayers teach you theology. As we're praying, you're thinking. I think there's no better model of praying theologically rich prayers than Jesus Himself. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 7 says, when you pray, do not heap up, notice this, empty words. When you pray, do not heap up careless words as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Don't be thoughtless in your prayers, he's saying. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this. Notice how rich this prayer is. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Sorry, I'm reading a different translation that I've got memorized. (laughs) Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice this progression in Jesus' thought process in his prayer. His first concern is not, God, give me this and help me with that. Make sure they don't do this, but make sure this happens. No. What is his first concern? Praise. Hallowed be thy name. You are glorious. Your name is glorious. You are great. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here and all around the globe. God, may your mission be accomplished. It's all about God and a praise of Him. That's first concern when we pray. And then secondly, requests come. God, give me my daily bread though. I trust you to provide for me more than the birds of the sky or the lilies of the field. I trust you. That comes, but it's not the first thing. Or struggles with temptation. God, help me with my temptation. Don't throw me into the temptation. Guard me from the temptation. These requests come after first praising. So we do not pray firstly to give, sorry, we do not pray firstly to a giver of gifts, but to a God to be admired. I think sometimes we forget that. We do not firstly pray to a a giver of gifts. We firstly pray to a God who is to be admired. And it's not only important that we pray, it also matters how we pray. Jesus said, pray like this. So, we could keep going, but every element in our worship service should be rich in theology. It should shape everything we do. And that, 
that puts a responsibility on me as your pastor, as a service leader, that the sermons would be rich in theology, puts responsibility on Pastor Trent, that the songs would be rich in theology, that the prayers would be rich in theology. But please, 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 please hear this. There's a responsibility on the whole church as well. To not zone out or sit passively through a service. But that we would engage on an intellectual level thinking about biblical truths so that our thinking might turn into passion and worship. To the person who's in this room that doesn't know Jesus, I hope you noticed the gospel today and the songs that we sung and the sermon that you just heard and the prayers that we prayed. I hope you heard the gospel because our services need to be gospel rich. Amen? If you didn't hear the gospel and you need the gospel today, I want you to look for it in this final song that we're going to sing. It's rich with the gospel. That we have created a chasm between us and God with our sin. But yet, in loving kindness, God took our place on a cross, bringing us back to relationship with Him. And so now we, in response to that work of God, sing to the one who has set us free. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 